Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. I'm his guest, Ethan Bartlett, and I am being Ethan? a good guest and not uh, trying to sort of take back over the host slot. I don't know why I felt <laughs> the need to point that out, but that's true. You know, you got to cover all your bases and make it explicit and clear what uh what everyone can expect of you um michael um, we've discussed many times this is a family podcast and therefore not explicit that's true we're going we are explicitly not explicit i'm, hmm. I'm <laughs> with that ponder that one for um, a second. this is not one of our uh regular episodes but instead a special as we are uh, gearing up to reading and discussing war and peace by leo tolstoy uh, we figured we'd have a, a soft introduction to russian literature in general uh and so we are going to be discussing today um the play the seagull by anton chekhov now to be clear and michael maybe you have a better idea of what i'm about to say than i do I don't know if this is, like, the Russian literature equivalent of saying, like, hey, we're going to read some Thomas Pynchon, so we thought first we might read, like, a little-known Mark Twain play or something. Not that the seagull is, like, yep. little-known, but, you know, like, I don't know if this actually is a natural <laughs> dovetail, but... <laughs> it's a natural seagull tale. Um... Wow. <laughs> Hurtful. Yes. That's it. Um, but no, I, yeah, I like the, there are certainly crossovers, not just because Chekhov and Tolstoy are both Russian, but um, it like, I mean, it, I don't know. The Seagull's <laughs> written in 1895, so within 30 yeah. or so years of the publication of War and Peace, so certainly closer in time than my right. weird example that I brought up. <laughs> um well it's it's closer in time and Chekhov and Tolstoy were both aware of each other and commented on each other's work. Okay, they did. Um yep. Uh you, uh even though Chekhov is um a number of years younger than than Tolstoy. Um so there's some they, overlap there. Um once Chekhov came on the scene, Tolstoy became aware of him and commented on him a little bit. Sure. Um but uh, that said, I, I don't know that this will actually serve much of an introduction to Tolstoy at all. I mean, the other um, the other reason that we talked about wanting to do Chekhov is that we've never done Chekhov in several years of doing mm -hmm. this podcast, and that just feels wrong. Um, it kind of does. Like, like we've done some theater, uh, we've done Shakespeare and stuff, and we've we've just we haven't done, done Chekhov. We've done That's... some other plays. We've done some Irish theater. Uh, yeah. You know. But Chekhov is is a glaring omission, and yeah. that uh, we're about to rectify it. So, um, before we do, Ethan, what are you drinking? I am drinking not scotch tonight, um, because it's it's a special episode and there are no rules. <laughs> um, so I'm drinking a plantation rum. Um, plantation mm -hmm. is a is a brand of rum, and I am drinking their artisanal infusion Stiggins Fancy smoky formula um so stiggins fancy is a sort of uh rum project that that pla so plant i guess i should back up slightly plantation is a rum label kind of run by ru like rum and cocktail and 
booze history nerds. Um, mm. So they do a lot of things with trying to either bring back certain uh, uh, flavors and ideas that have been sort of lost or if not lost, at least kind of kind of hidden for a long time. Um, and this project is apparently in that line because it is a pineapple-infused rum. So it's a dark rum mm-hmm. that they essentially, like, put into some barrels with some, like, pineapple, just, like, pineapple cores or husks or whatever. Um, so it's not, like, a sweet, like, like a sweetened, you know, if you thought of, like, a pineapple rum, like, mm-hmm. Bacardi might make, where it's, like, you know, essentially a liqueur and it's it's sweet and you'd have to cut it. It's still, you know, a strong and, and dark rum, but it has elements of pineapple. And then this is mm-hmm. a limited edition of the Stiggins Fancy, um, which has additionally been put into teeling Irish whiskey casks. And that's where the idea of the smoky formula comes from. So um, mm-hmm. it's a it's a really... So you said it's the plantation rum and then the, the specific title of it was Ethan by this Ethan by this Ethan by this rum you will love yeah I, I don't know how you read like that the label said that through sort of our our cameras here like it was I showed it to you just now admittedly but it's pretty small print for you to be able to to read where it does say that um but yeah it's it's quite something I do have the only other thing I have is um I just have a little bit of club soda here because I couldn't decide if I wanted mm. to drink like a you know, more, a stronger version, or if I wanted to stretch it out, so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, by the way, Stiggins Fancy, that, that title is named after a Charles Dickens character, I believe, um, oh, uh, just trying to find it on bottle here, um, I can't find it quickly enough, uh, to be lazy about my research, but Stiggins is a character in <laughs> Dickens who, I think maybe out of the Pickwick Papers, um, but his thing was pineapple rum. Okay. So this is like mm. some a, a product that would have been known in Dickens' day and that Plantation was kind of bringing back. And so they named it after this Dickens character who was known for drinking it. So I just wanted to point nice. that up as being extra appropriate for our book bookish yes. podcast. Right. And speaking of glaring omissions also, <laughs> uh, Dickens there. but Yeah, um, but I mean... It's not like there's a short Dickens. Yeah, you know, I mean, he'd have to be. He's a got some book. short stories. And stuff, I was ignoring but... the existence of a Christmas Carol, but <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. Well, good. Uh, that sounds delicious, and um, I'm happy for you. Thank you. Um, I am drinking a cocktail that I kind of made up. Um, by, I, I was I was idly flipping through my um, little pocket book of cocktails, um, just examining some of the ingredients and in different kinds. And I forget which cocktail it was, but there was something that had like vodka and triple sec and lemon juice and lime juice and orange juice. Um, I think it was orange juice. Anyway, like or wine. There was wine in oh, there wow. um, that's like used to top it up and stuff. And okay. it's like. Wow, this sounds like crazy, and I don't want exactly this. Um, but I was like, I could, I could make some substitutions to make it structurally the same, but substantially totally different. Um, and so what I have done with this is 
I've taken whiskey and absinthe. Uh, a s- small, small portion of absinthe because it's such a powerful flavor. Mm. Um, and then some lemon juice and lime juice and uh, shaken those all together and then topped it up with club soda. Um, and that, like, I don't know if that makes any sense as being sort of structurally similar to what I described earlier, but in my brain it is. Sure. Um, and what you wind up with is uh, quite refreshing, but full-bodied um, thing that has those undertones of the absinthe black licorice type type thing going on. Interesting. And I'm I'm quite pleased with the result. Okay, that that was I mean that's the most important part obviously. Um mm-hmm. it does make sense as being structurally similar to what you outlined with the one exception being that in your formulation I didn't hear anything that would balance the sourness with like a sweetness. Except maybe the mm. absinthe, which can be a little sweet, but it's so strong it usually doesn't function that way. So just having you describe it to me, my only fear would maybe that be that it would be like too tart. But maybe the it is it is tart, but it I, it is not too tart. Okay. Um, I think the whiskey helps um, to balance it out. Sure. Um, it's a it's a sweeter Irish whiskey okay yeah that might that might help i mean you know the the standard formula for like a whiskey sour say you'd have your citrus which you might use lemon and lime or just lemon and then you'd usually have like sugar in some form Mm -hmm. either simple syrup or you know you might get fancy and use like a triple sec or whatever as well as as well as like the whiskey um so you know it's it just it seems like a very bold experiment uh but mm-hmm. again if you if you like it that's that's the important part um it, it's a successful bold experiment sure. so yep. that's what counts exactly <laughs> yeah it sounds super interesting like i would definitely try it yeah yeah i'm i'm pleased um so with that ethan uh like you say we have no rules because this is a special uh episode but we will be discussing the seagull by Anton Chekhov. And I, I, I don't remember exactly the timeline of all of his plays, but it's not his first play. It's not his last play. Um, it, it's somewhere, I think, early middle of his. Yeah. So the volume that I have here... By the way, did we want to do some sort of trigger warning just as we get into the or content? I, or I, I was going to mention um, yeah. that uh, as, we, as we go through this, there is... Uh, some some sensitive subject matter uh, to the play. So yeah, we should offer a, a bit of a trigger warning, especially regarding um, uh, talking about suicide. It's kind of a central theme um, of the play. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's, it's... It's brought up quite a bit, and I think we're going to talk about it quite a bit as, as it refers to the characters. I'd say it's essentially unavoidable, and it's kind of woven in. So, yes. you, know, I, you know, I don't think we will... We make our jokes, but I don't think we will make our jokes about that. But if you don't want to like right. hear about it, like there's, you know, there's not really a neat way to be like, okay, skip to this part or whatever. So just as right. a right. as a warning. Um, so I've been flipping through uh, because the volume I was forced to buy uh, 
by you, Michael, which is how I justified it to my wife that you had forced me to do it, um, Mm -hmm. was the complete plays of Anton Chekhov. Um, Mm. uh, Well, it's it's just called the plays of Anton Chekhov. I'm assuming that implies a completeness. Um, Mm. I guess it doesn't technically say, but uh, I uh, agreed to do this episode with you thinking that I had um, a a smaller collection of Chekhov plays that included the seagull, um, partly because I had read that collection just a few years ago, but I must have gotten rid of it at some point in the intervening time, which I discovered when I went Hmm. to look for it, so then I was forced to purchase um, this one. And anyway, I was flipping through, and it doesn't seem like the plays are quite arranged in in chronological order, but of his like long plays, his plays that are longer than one act, um, it seems like Ivanov comes before the seagull. Um, yeah. And then it seems like Uncle Vanya, Three Sisters, and the Cherry Orchard are all after it. I may be missing. Maybe that's all his long plays. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of the shorter plays come before it as well. So um, yeah, early, middle to middle seems like a... Uh, an accurate assessment based on that brief um, brief tour. Yeah, um, the volume I'm reading from is called is just called Plays um, by Anton Chekhov. It's a Penguin Classics edition, and it has um, those five: Ivanov, Seagull, Uncle Vanya, Three Sisters, and Cherry Orchard sure. um, in it, in that order, um, which I believe is the publication slash premiere order. Um, but yeah, so uh, Chekhov was writing at the end of the 19th century. Um, we uh, mentioned that there's some crossover with Tolstoy, um, who, with War and Peace, that's published uh, as a single volume somewhere around 1860s, I think. Uh, 1868 is the date that sticks in my head. 1868. I think portions of it were published sooner, but that may be the, when the... Yeah. The the single volume complete version appeared right yeah before that it was published serially um and and under different titles we'll talk about that later on but um (laughs) the um Chekhov uh himself um isn't born until 1860 uh and so when War and Peace comes out he's like eight or nine years old um so the he he grows up however uh, i i have a brief chronology uh in the front of of my volume that uh shows that he he comes up in a very literary sort of atmosphere he's watching productions of hamlet at age 13 sure. um and uh reading uh dostoevsky and um he his first full-length play was written when he was 18, but the manuscript was destroyed. Um, and then, uh, he, so he, he's very literary from very early on, which I think does, um, communicate some awareness of, of Tolstoy and, and other, um, writers of the time. But, uh, Shakespeare was a huge influence on him, um, as, as it was becoming more and more popular in Russia at this time. Um, but I, I want to give just a little bit of the, the background of the drama, the, the, the set the stage, so to speak, uh, 
for what drama was doing. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how Chekhov himself sets the stage later um, in multiple ways. Um, but <laughs> don't shake your head. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is a um, dream you're having. But uh, so there, there was a, a lot of the, the stage at this time was melodramatic. Um, and it was... Uh, it, this is a pattern that uh, that has shown itself in in other ways as well, like in European theater, also where the the stage is dominated by melodrama, um, and people go for the shock and awe, even though they know it's coming, um, and that that's what Chekhov was objecting to, um, I, and I think uh, others in the European stage were objecting to it uh, as well. Um, is that it was not realistic and, and it didn't convey any real emotion. Um, that uh, the emotions you saw on stage were all totally fake, uh, and it was just there to by, manipulate your your feelings in different by ways. By fake, do you kind of also mean contrived, or like? Yeah, absolutely. Because mm-hmm. like that's that's more or less exactly what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because there's, there's obviously there's some like old debates here that even go back to Plato or whatever, but like. You can, you can, if you're being kind of a jerk, you can facetiously argue like, well, all acting is fake. But when you say fake here, you mean, I mean, I think you use the word manipulative um, is a good one, but mm-hmm. contrived might be a more specific description of the type of fakeness that um, is being objected to. Yeah. I'm asking this sort of with a question yeah. mark because you know, you know, this, this part of the the history better than I do. Sure. Um, no, it, it, and it, it is, uh, the, the, there was no, um, genuineness and the, the phrase that was brought up, um, more in regard to Ibsen, I think, than Chekhov, but in a lot of ways, Chekhov is seen as kind of the Russian Ibsen or Ibsen is seen as the Scandinavian Chekhov, however you want to a description cast probably it. neither but of them would be thrilled with neither neither one of them would like that no um <laughs> uh, the idea is that um on stage he shows us ourselves uh is is kind of the the point so it's it's not realism and that's another um thing that's uh um it it is less common i want to say at this time than the melodrama but it's still it's still there's that that idea of realism that you have to have everything exactly real instead it's um there's there's a term for it and i can't remember exactly what it is but it's almost an idealism um sometimes like an existentialism slash idealism that's going on sometimes the term like Um, heightened realism comes up in discussions like this yeah or or just the term heightened where it's not realism Mm -hmm. But it's not melodrama, but it's like taking something that is real and like like exaggerating it to a certain extent to to make it make certain aspects of it more um apparent mm-hmm. in sort of the same way that like painters will play with light and shadow to you know in in certain styles of painting to uh represent something but not in like a photographic way. Something like right. that. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's that's kind of kind of what uh, Chekhov is doing here. So in in his plays, and we'll talk about Seagull specifically in a second, but you see realistic characters 
in that these are characters with genuine emotions uh, and they and, and realistic reactions to things. Um, and uh, the way the structure of the play forms around the characters also is almost deliberately to not create an emotional response, but to present the the situation and let the emotions naturally flow from it. Um, if that makes any sort of sense. No, it does. It makes um, sense. And I mean, I think, you know, when I think about melodrama, I think about like the plot has to happen in a certain way and order and like certain emotional beats have to be hit mm-hmm. and you often subordinate any kind of realistic either emotion or or a set of occurrences to that plot so it's like you think of like the romantic comedy where at say the the midpoint of the movie or whatever something has to happen to shatter the happiness of the two main characters that you want to see mm-hmm. get together and like it doesn't matter whether that's realistic or if it comes out of left field or if it's been set up or anything like that. It just has to happen. Um, right. And I think of that sort of thing as like the opposite of what you're describing from, from Chekhov here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. He, he lets it flow a little more naturally. I, I don't know specifically. Um, so like we've, we've toyed with the idea of like looking at the, the, the things that caused riots in literature. Yes. I, I don't think Seagull caused a riot, but there there's that sort of sensibility of what, what was it reacting against and how did it stand apart from the other theater of the day? And I can't answer that specifically. I don't have specific examples of, of what the theater really looked like besides that or how, you know, if you had that specific outline that the melodramas were supposed to follow, that everyone was going to the theater basically expecting that this this beat will happen here, this beat will happen here, this beat will happen here. How did this uh, unseat that? How did this um, um, just throw that completely off? Um, which I'm sure it did, but I can't tell you exactly Yeah, I was how. trying to... Um, uh, the other day when I read The Seagull, um, which is like technically the second time that I read it, but I barely remember it from the first time, even though it was just a few years ago. Because um, I think I think mm. I read it in like March of 2020, um, like when it felt like the whole world was falling apart, and I feel like my retention was, mm. uh, ironically perhaps, lowered by the melodrama of like what was happening in real life <laughs> all around us. Um, yeah. But I had heard a few months ago, um, and I was trying to find it, and it was just one of those things where it was like. Maybe I heard someone on on the on like national public radio or on a even just like on a TikTok or something that I was watching, but it was like one of those things where it was like a toss off remark at the time, and now I desperately wish I had saved it. Um, but it was, some, or it may have been, you know, some some literary some like book review or something where they were not reviewing Chekhov, but they're reviewing something else. Anyway, it was someone who tossed off this remark where they said Chekhov's plays almost seem like plays where nothing happens um Mm -hmm. except that if you really like if someone were to challenge you on that uh and you really had to think about it you might end up thinking that there's sort of plays where everything happens like they're they're microcosms (laughs) 
Um, so I don't know. That that seems yeah. like it fits in with at least some of what you're saying. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a perfectly accurate description of Chekhov. Uh, yeah, it's it's a play where nothing happens, and it's a play where everything mm. happens. Um, and and I mean, you see these characters who, while they are realistic, also present just gargantuan, gargantuan mm. emotions. It's that heightened reality, so to speak, is is there where they 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 are real, but also just so huge mm. in comparison with real life. Um, that uh, that 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 helps, I think, to convey the idea of everything happening. Yeah, in in a play too. Which, like, when you talk about that, at least in somewhat in the abstract, it it almost uh, resonates with like a much earlier dramatic idea that almost goes back to like Ben Johnson and maybe Ben Johnson even drawing from like medieval, Mm. like mystery plays and morality plays. And this idea of like characters representing not like three dimensional characters, the way we think of characters in, in novels, ideally. um, But just like Mm -hmm. aspects of, of reality, like, um, mm-hmm. If I remember right, it's it's Ben Johnson who wrote like every man in his humor and every man out of his humor, and um, mm. he thought of his characters as like these em- embodiments of abstract concepts um, that like yeah. each character would represent one of the four humors, um, and that they were not mm-hmm. meant to be characters in in the sense of like seeming like real people you would meet. They were they were just more like embodiments of of concepts. Um, and I think I don't I my impression just from, you know, reading these texts, uh, you know, not from like reading any criticism about them. But my impression would be that that wouldn't quite be accurate either to say that that's what Chekhov mm. is doing, because it's like, I don't know, these these characters don't as much as I agree that their their emotions seem gargantuan. And I do want to use that word. uh in its full Rabelaisian uh, implications, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't feel like you can reduce it to oh, this is the embo- this character is the embodiment of jealousy, and this character is the embodiment of mm. uh, whatever else. Like, I don't know. Right. I guess you could you could sort of analyze it that way. You could even direct it that way to some extent, but I don't know that that's certainly like the most natural interpretation textually speaking well let's talk about this play specifically and get into the action uh so does your uh edition say underneath the seagull a comedy in four acts um yes by the way uh my translation is by paul schmidt um Mine is by Peter okay. Carson. Uh, so, we'll have different translations. Oh, that's, in that's fact, okay. I kind of like that. But this this book, mm-hmm. I mostly bought because it was two dollars more expensive for all of the plays than just the Seagull at the the bookstore I was at. So I figured, what the heck? Oh but, yeah. Um, the according to the book itself, this is a new translation. I think it's a pretty recent publication and. 
it's supposed to be revolutionary, though, of course. Well, okay, so this was published in 1997, oh. so not the newest translation, but... Um, okay, mine's oh, 2002, okay, so... You beat me. so. Yeah. I beat you. Mine's mine's newer and more groundbreaking uh, well, you than know, yours. Uh, somebody's <laughs> had to be. But um, so okay, we can talk about what uh, what it means that it's it's a comedy yeah. uh, in a bit. That's something um, I didn't note when I was reading it, some... and so I kind of didn't keep it in mind. And that's that's okay. Uh, I don't think it's something you you really do need to keep in mind. Um, but, I mean, how would I... Because I, I, I think Chekhov just kind of subtitled these things that way to have a subtitle. And was like, sure, it's a comedy. Why? Yeah, I mean, I just not? assumed it would be so that I would know the jokes were funny. Yeah, that's that's it. So you know that you're supposed to laugh yeah. at certain parts. Um, which, there are certainly parts that are funny um, in in this play. Sometimes it's a, it's a little bit of a dark humor. Um but uh, there are, I think, definitely some laugh-out-loud moments. But um, we start in Act 1, uh, and each act is a complete scene. Um, long, long, full, full scene. But So it's four scenes slash four acts um, for this whole play. But it starts out... Um, I'm just going to read the, the first stage direction that I have in, in my translation. It says, Part of the park of Soren's estate. A broad avenue leading towards a lake in the distance is blocked by a stage hastily put up for private theatricals, so the lake cannot be seen at all. To left and right of the stage are shrubberies, some chairs, a small table. So right off the bat, we have a play within the play. Um, and... You know, before we start reading, we don't know if it has happened or will happen or or what. But there's a play within the play, um, and I th- I, th- I just thought it was interesting that you've got this stage direction that notes or it's a it's like a, a set design direction that you have a lake here, but y- right. you can't see the lake. That did correct <laughs> me as well. <laughs> like, it's. I, I feel like I would love to write a play with that sort of stage direction that, you know, there's this thing over uh-huh. here, but nobody can see it. <laughs> and it, it. You know, it makes sense that people are going to refer to it. So that, that it is useful in the sense that the actors will be talking about the lake. And so where are they pointing? Where is the lake that they're talking about? This tells right. you where it is. There's also, um, you know. And then later on, you should be able to yeah. see it um, off in the distance. There, also, I mean, there's, there's but, also, it kind of gives even potentially gives the, like, set designer uh, uh, some interesting choices, like, can do the mm. do the curtains, say, on the back of the stage, ripple occasionally, and you can see the lake through them. Um, if there mm-hmm. are sound effects, do you hear the distant splashing of the lake, even though you maybe can't see it? Um, right. There are certain right. things like that that you could do with it. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. So we, we find out that this play is one, um, that Konstantin Gavrilovich Treplyov, uh, or Kostya is, uh, putting on that, uh, uh, I think he's usually called Treplyov in my, my translation. Um, um, and I, I have no doubt that I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, but uh, so he's written a play. He's a young playwright, and this is apparently his first attempt at a, a performance of sorts. But his mother is an actress, 
uh, and he is uh, enamored of another actress who lives close by that uh, he has cast in the the lead role for for this play that he has written. Um, I think this sort of setup is almost a uh, almost a two on the nose design for having some commentary right. on theater within a play. Uh, like when we know for a fact that Chekhov was deliberately going against certain theater conventions um, and himself did object to much of theater in his day. Like, it seems like it's too on the nose almost for, for this to, to be, to have this play within a play. So it's like, okay, here's something that I can make fun of, except for the fact that it's not that simple. He's not just creating this satire of a play. Um, there is more depth well, to it going on and the characters have a discussion especially is complicated uh, by the fact (laughs) that you know constantine is a is a young playwright and he's he's trying to do something new but um part of the pathos Mm -hmm. is that he he almost feels like someone shouting into the void perhaps that you know um the Mm -hmm. very small uh audience that that he you know you might expect to be sort of sympathetic to what he's what he's trying to do just because of their feelings towards him doesn't react the way that he wants them to um and you know Mm -hmm. so it's like it it struck me i mean it's certainly you know there's certainly commentary on theater and satire on theater but it also struck me as like a commentary on youth and the like you know the the sort of young um I guess idealistic, maybe even angry kind of young writer or artist who expects that just the fact of them um, saying something different or doing something different ought to change things, even though um, they have no platform or they have no context or you know whatever like actual ability to to change things. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that just has to do with you know me being at whatever point of life I am when I read it recently, but, um, you know, it, it feels like, <laughs> sure, sure. Again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say like more like it's about the folly of youth, but, but certainly it feels like there's that parallel track laid down next to whatever commentary on theater and that, that both are kind of going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, you've got these complicated characters uh, that um, have their ideals. You know, you've got multiples. Treplyov is not the only one um, who are searching for something almost, striving for something, but don't fully, how do I want to say it? Like, it's not that they don't fully get it, but like, it, it is kind of a screaming into the void sort of thing where it's like, I can't even get close to exactly what I want. I can I can attain an approximation, but it's not not the same thing. Um, the two characters you meet at the at the beginning of the play, um, I, I think it's fascinating to trace their development. Um, it's Medvedenko mm. and Masha. Um, at least that's how they're abbreviated uh, on here. Um, Masha is Maria Ilyinichna Mashenka and Mashenka or Mashenka, uh, and um, Medvedenko is there's more 
detail to his name. Semyon Semyonovich Medvedenko. And he's a schoolmaster, a teacher. Um, uh, Masha is the, the daughter of um, Soren's estate manager. So she's connected to the house here. Um, as in any Russian work, really, the, the characters' relationships are all very complex. Uh, and I'm not going to go through all their names the same way that I just did those ones because I'm sick of mispronouncing them. But, uh, the, so you get this, this, um, this introduction of these two characters and it immediately starts into a conversation about emotion and the presentation of emotion because Medvedenko, the schoolmaster asks Masha, why do you always wear black? And she says, I'm in mourning for my life. I am unhappy. Uh, it's just like, whoa, <laughs> hitting us pretty heavy right off the bat. Um, but that uh, that kind of maintains, and it, it it almost allows a sort of um, melodrama, or at least an internal melodrama for the characters. Like she is living out this melodrama, mm. apparently. Um, Medvedenko is just like, I just I just want to be with you, and you know, try to help and be present, and uh, it's yeah, not working. I mean, again... um, by the, end, the folly of youth, yeah. like that excla- exclamation from yep. her, uh, just made me think very like goth vibes. Just feels like you know, right, right, the, yeah. The, She's the, the goth character, the stereotypical um, goth kid being like, everything's darkness. Have you read Nietzsche yet? Nietzsche explains it all. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, but then, uh, by the end of act one, uh, she's interesting also because she's talking to Dorn, uh, and he's the doctor, correct? Um, yeah, he's the doctor. And, uh, then she says in her last line of the act, I'm so unhappy. No one, no one knows how unhappy I am. I love Constantine. Um, so she's talking about Trepliov and being in love with him. Uh, and apparently that's the reason for her unhappiness, uh, or at least it's connected to her unhappiness. And so, uh, uh, see, I, I think these characters are, are interesting because they border the the high drama that's going on with Trepliov. And he's in this um, jealous triangle with... Uh, it's it's like a, a weird 3D <laughs> jealous triangle going on because uh, his mother is an actress who is jealous that he didn't cast her in his play because he cast this young actress, Nina, who he's, he's in love with uh, in the in the play. Um, and so his mother just spends the whole time complaining about the play, which we're led to believe is because she's jealous she didn't get a part in it. But I don't know if it's quite so simple. In any case... Nina then is infatuated with this uh, young author, uh, Trigorin. Uh, uh, he's a novelist who has had some success and therefore is a target for Trepliov's jealousy, uh, not only because of his uh, literary success, but also because Nina is uh, attracted to him and he himself is in love with Nina. And meanwhile, Maja is in love with him. So all of these triangles going on that are just kind of centered on um yeah i also think that there may be a um there's certainly a reverse freudian thing with uh uh irina um Mm. being jealous of nina on on a you know what i think is I, i i don't think it's directly that she didn't get cast in the play i think it's that 
Nina getting cast in the play instead of her represents her son um, going away from her mm -hmm. uh, to put it, I guess, to attempt to put it in the most neutral way possible. Um, well, at the same time, I think that some of uh, uh, Constantine's um, uh, jealousy of, of Trigorin has to do with the fact that Trigorin is ostensibly his mother's I think like bow or suitor, however you wanna put that, or certainly. So if, yeah, there's if that's not official, like a that's certainly there. the vibe. <laughs> like, I think the mother has kind of brought him, and they're yep. traveling together at different points and s stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and so like you mentioned that sort of um, like almost reverse Freudian thing, which I think is is highlighted because. Um, so Laurence Olivier wasn't the first one to come up with the interpretation of Hamlet um, that has uh, an almost Freudian well, Freud, aspect to it. But uh, whether or not that's there, the relationship of Hamlet and his mother is certainly one that is fraught, and it's brought to the fore explicitly uh, in Act One because uh, before the play begins, um, just seemingly out of the blue, uh, his mother quotes from Hamlet. Uh, and says, Oh, Hamlet, speak no more. Thou turnst mine oh. eyes into my very soul, and there I see such black and grained spots as will not leave their tinct. And Trefleyov responds, Nay, but to live in the rank sweat of an inseamed bed, stewed in corruption, honeying and making love over the nasty sty. Uh, and that's the that's the scene in Hamlet when um, he goes to his mother's chamber uh, to confront her uh, about her relationship to um, Claudius, his, his uncle, uh, now stepfather, uh, and her betrayal in his eyes of um, clearly his father I was reading this too fast well. because um, I picked up on like the Freudian love triangles and I noted the the use of Hamlet just which I found interesting just from the perspective of uh, you know a, a Russian playwright quoting quoting Shakespeare. Um, it's always interesting when those things kind of cross borders, mm -hmm. um, and that. But I never I did not make the what seems like now that you say it, the super obvious connection there. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, it, it's, it's so interesting too. And this is, this is a characteristic of um, Chekhov's writing also that, you know, the characters will be having a conversation and then all of a sudden something will come out that seems mm -hmm. totally out of left field. Um, in performance, it would be totally, um, I, it would make total sense, but also um, just in the way that watching two people have a conversation right. makes sense. Um, so, like, it, it, this this gives a hint at their relationship that they both know Hamlet. They both have this love for the theater, but also because of the section of Hamlet that they chose, like, it also gives hints at the, the underlying tension in their mother-son relationship. Um, and... And, and highlights more, I think, uh, the mother's yeah. jealousy than anything. Um, or at least the effect that her jealousy has well, again, on her son. Though, you know, I, I think that's all there. But in sort of the the shadow or the, the reverse of the coin um, interpretation, it makes the son Hamlet and implies all of the jealousies that Hamlet has of and for his mother. So yep. it's you know, potentially all there. Right. Right. Yes. All of it. I think, um, absolutely. And, um, 
it's it's this weird interaction that those two have, the mother and son, because um, she's, for some weird reason, and we've discussed some of it, just upset mm-hmm. at his writing mm-hmm. and doesn't like it, makes fun of it all the time. And he, it's not necessarily that he's just vying for his mother's approval in it, but certainly her vociferous lack of approval to me, is a roadblock. To me, it seems like he expects that there should be some level of default support, if not approval, if those two things yeah. are indeed different uh, in his mind. Um just in the sense that she should be supporting his artistic endeavors and that she should be, you know, supporting what he wants to do in giving the theater new forms, um, to quote at least my translation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think I think some of that's in there. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it, it strikes me that, you know, when... when um... When he like kicks, cuts off mm-hmm. the performance of his play, it's entirely right. because of his mother's actions, his mother's phrasings. Um, that like he he he's put in so the devil shows up uh, in the play, and so she smells sulfur, uh, and she asks, "Is that intentional?" And he says, "Yes." And so like you can almost hear a little bit of excitement, like, "Yeah, you notice that?" And she goes, "Yeah, it's effective." You know, you can see her like. Blowing, uh, waving her hand in front of her nose, and he says, "Mama, uh, like yeah. stop." Don't I got like a, and um, like a mom. Then, come on, mom. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh, the doctor takes off his hat. Uh, for some reason, we're not totally sure. Uh, and the his mother says, "The doctor has taken off his hat to the devil, the father of an eternal matter," which is like hmm. quoting the play. Um, like, uh, cause Nina, when she's performing the play says, uh, the devil, the principle of the forces of matter. Um, and so then the mother says the doctor has taken off his hat to the devil, the father of eternal matter. Like that last part is pretty much quoting the play. Um, not exactly, but like she's, she's making fun of it and not really paying attention to it. Um, like just right. MST3King yeah. the play at this point basically uh and that's when he loses his temper uh uh, calls for the curtain says the play is done um and and leaves um so it's because of her basically sabotaging Mm -hmm. of the play with her mockery um that that's how how he reacts so she's she's in his way for sure um um Briefly, if you don't mind, I actually wanted to just touch on what we get of the play. Um, I I was hoping to talk a little which, bit about that. Partly yes, because like I, I'm I'm not as well educated or as well read, I think, in different eras of theater history as as you are. Um, but I've kind of bounced around in different. Um, you know, eras and and movements. And briefly, I was very fascinated by the symbolist movement in theater. Um, And I I haven't read a ton in it. Like I haven't read a, you know, an expert level um, in it or anything, but um, the one play that's always stuck with me uh, was Strindberg's A Dream Play. 
Um, and that's what this play reminded mm. me of um, very much. And as I understand, like, if I'm using the term symbolist correctly, the, the symbolist movement was kind of a reaction, I think, against, like, realism and naturalism, um, as well as maybe against, like, melodrama, in that it took theater to its, like, most abstract idea and and tried to work very much with like mm-hmm. symbols and and dreamlike um ideas and kind of tried there's probably there's probably a lot of inspiration from Carl Jung um as well and some of his contemporaries mm-hmm. in trying to use theater to like construct these forms that would get at the subconscious and the the dream levels of consciousness um and you know do yeah something with that to put it in the most generic way possible well yeah no like um oscar wilde did a, a foray into symbolist theater as well yeah. with his play salome um, um which like at, at the surface level is just the dramatization of a biblical story but it's also like so extremely yeah, very, symbolist um yeah. the, the language is almost absurdist um uh like it, absurdist is different than symbolist but there's 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 crossover there um but like uh it it, it has it basically these same ideas too where it's like get at the the, the ultimate forms yeah. in a platonic sense of yeah. things uh, salome reads um if you read it it reads almost like a prose poem um yeah and i, I don't have you ever seen it performed uh i've directed parts oh, that's of right it. I, I remember that from back in the day um back in the day yeah i haven't seen the full production of it like i can only imagine that it it has something of the effect of and in the hands of a skilled performer i'm sure it's brilliant but like that it has something of the effect of like a a poetry reading or like a like a a performance of Mm -hmm. of a poem um yeah but yeah uh well, it's tricky because it could be something that you easily just turn into pure performance or not performance, like um, monologue almost, um, presentational yeah. uh, reading, which which would lend itself to that sort of poetry reading sort of thing. Which you know, just reading through what we have of the play with this one person standing on the stage, um, monologuing yeah. essentially, it, it comes across very much like just a poetry right. reading. Um, and that's something so like um later in the uh early 20th century uh especially like one man shows would become a popular theater form right. it still is um where it's just one person has written and then performs a play um on his own uh and it, it has some similarities to like a comedy mm-hmm. show but usually it's something somewhat um, autobiographical um, in nature. Uh, and it's almost like a poetry reading, almost like a memoir mm-hmm. reading. Um, but this is this is like that, but then symbolist. Right. <laughs> um. Um, and so, like, I, 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 w- I would be interested to see how people might yeah. perform it. Um, I, I would want to myself avoid just the presentationalism. Uh, 
like we it, it's looking at this from a director's eye we get enough mockery from the mother especially that i would want the play itself i would want nina to put her whole heart and soul right. into this i would want it to be genuinely right. good <laughs> Um, and interesting so that the mockery makes a little less sense, but is uh, that much more heartbreaking. Heartbreaking and um, also, it you know, just gets cut off. It, it, yeah, it creates more, more layers that way, basically. Um, and points up the, the fact that the mockery is not necessarily genuine or, or even, even concerned with genuineness, like that this mockery feels like it would happen no matter how good or bad mm-hmm. the, the play itself or the the performance of it was um right but by the way i looked up a dream play just out of curiosity and it was published six or seven years after this play was so um, oh, okay and I, and I know that the symbolist movement had you know a lot more to it than just strindberg and and so forth but um, yeah 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 mm-hmm. i don't know but yeah it was it was yeah around around this time um so um. Yeah. Uh. So I, I don't know. It, well, and we've got the line too later that uh, Dorn, the doctor, actually likes the play. Mm-hmm. Um. He he's like, there's there's something to this, you know. I, I I like it. I think I think the kid's onto something. Right. Um. I want to encourage him. Right. <laughs> in it. Um. So, which is which is just sweet. Um. Like after Trepliev has been through the ringer with this. Then Dorn, on his own, just says, yeah, I want to say a lot of nice things to him. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. The the play itself, so it, do, do you have anything more to say about Trepliov's play itself? Um, Not really, other than, I guess, in context of our discussion earlier, it is interesting that um, uh, both Chekhov and... Trepliev want to sort of problematize and get away from what they see as the uh, uh, ridiculousness or staleness of the modern theater, but um, Trepliev's play and the seagull try to do that in two very different ways. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about with it being a commentary on theater, but not as straightforward of a commentary as you might like be initially led to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, I I wonder if there's any symbolist uh influence on Chekhov and on this play specifically. I mean, it seems like he certainly because since it seems it seems like he certainly would be a would have been aware of it just. I can't imagine yeah. this this play within a play existing in a vacuum. Um, yeah, beyond that, I I certainly don't know. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Um. So it occurs to me we've been recording for going on an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we want to j- discussing Act yeah. One? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, context and Act One. Um, yes, do we want to do a part two of this special? Let's, let's do okay. that. Let's, uh, let's cut it in two because I think, uh, I mean, we could rush we, through we can... X two through four in the next, you know, in 10 or 15 minutes if we wanted to, but it seems like there's so much there to <sighs> unpack. Yeah, there is. Um, 
So I, I I think we should we should give it its due. So we'll uh we'll take it up in uh, uh the next episode, I guess. <laughs> we'll uh um continue discussing the seagull. Uh and then you'll just have to wait that much longer for us to talk about war and peace. Um <laughs> but uh in the meantime if you have any thoughts gentle listener please get in touch with us you can find us uh on the tapsterradio.org website go to the t- contact section put scotch talk in the subject line that'll get in touch with us via email uh you can find us technically on twitter at room with scotch uh or on facebook uh we run the tapster radio tap house uh private group on facebook you can request to join and we will let you in unless you make fun of our art that's right um or if you're a mom yeah or if you're a mom. Mom, I'd, I'd let you, if you're listening to this, I'd let you in. But. Yeah. Not if you make I fun of too. my art. No. Um, That's complicated. Uh, we'll also do homework. We don't promise to do it well, but you can uh, submit homework assignments, uh, specifically English or literature assignments, uh, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. The form to fill in is there near the top of the page. Uh, so just input that and we'll do it. And then you can turn it in and get hauled off to plagiarism jail and we will laugh as you are taken away. Uh-huh. If you like this show, you can uh, follow our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the actual play RPG Fiasco Podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, where three grown men talk about the children's book series Freddy the Pig from 100 years ago. Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG podcast, and Shakespeare in the Village, the uh, companion podcast to the Shakespeare, the outdoor Shakespeare performances, and the uh, Albert Lee Freeborn County Historical Museum Library and Village. Uh, Ethan, any promotion that you would like to share? No, I think you covered it. Sweet! Uh, Well, then, gentle listener, just remember, until next time, it's our party, and we'll cry if our mothers make us. Obscurantism and Obfuscation Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.